Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. This conversation was a part of the 2020 Citizen Summit, a gathering of courageous conversation to explore how to navigate this moment and create a politics of community care. And this conversation with Prentice Hemphill and Francisca Porches Coronado really challenges us to dig deep and reckon with how we got here and how we can show up for one another. Side note, we recorded this on Zoom and the audio is a bit choppy, but the essence is there. Prentice Hemphill is a movement facilitator, somatics teacher and practitioner and writer living and working at the convergence of healing, individual and collective transformation and political organizing. Francisca Porches Coronado is a Mexican immigrant, Chicana feminist and former organizer with over 17 years experience. She is the founder and director of the Latinx Therapists Action Network, a wellness project that centers the healing of migrant peoples on the front lines of the immigrant rights movement. In our conversation, we talked about the practice of showing up, living into accountability, relinquishing rightness, movement as healing, and what it's going to take to build a culture of community care. At one point, Prentice said, This moment is asking you to change. Are you willing to be a new person now? I think that is the question that we can all take with us. Listen to this conversation as many times as you need and then live it. Over the last couple of days, we've been really exploring what it means to um, live into a politics of community care. Um, and you two are really embodying that practice. Um, and so I'm excited to learn from you um, and to follow your lead. Um, so uh, last night we had uh, the amazing Ruby Sales join us. And one of the things that she invited us to do was to um, remember and reclaim the, um, the medicine and the ritual, the lineage and the ancestors that we come from so that we can know who we are and know how to meet this moment in the most authentic and skillful way. And so I thought that would be an amazing place to start. What is the, the medicine and the lineage that you come from? Thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciative. And um, these are the kind of conversations that are really fun to me and that I yearn for. Um, now that I'm not necessarily an on-the-ground organizer, I feel like you all are my peers, and these are the kind of conversations I want to be a part of. So my lineage, there's so many, there's, there's a whole tree, but the basics are um, I am uh, a Mexicana. Um, I am of the desert lands of the Southwest, specifically Northern Mexico, and uh, what would now be Arizona, and what, was, and what is now Sonora. So literally those two neighboring states, which to me are just one big stretch of ancestral land for my people. Um, I uh, am Yaki Yoeme um, of the Sonora region and also Arizona and Tohonotam Arizona uh, nation and also um, Papago. And um, those are my people. I also obviously have ancestral roots in Spain, <laughs> like many of us, uh, Latino, uh, Chicanos, Mexicanos, whatever, however you want to identify yourself. Um, 
and I feel like my medicine comes from, from all those places. Um, my identity, definitely in the desert. I'm a total desert rat. And, um, and then also uh, I've been, um, my evangelism has been movement building. My evangelism has been social justice organizing, um, climate justice, and, and also um, an abolitionist sort of lens of the world. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that um, I, you know, am this Mexican woman who um, has been practicing uh, the ancient tradition of Ifa, which comes from West Africa, specifically the areas of um, Yoruba land, which would be Benin and Togo and Nigeria for the last 17 years and was brought into this tradition by a former Black Panther in South Central Los Angeles um, and must say that I, come, I came to it because of the politics and stayed because of the, um, the good character conversations and, and the worldview and the cosmology that really moved me and so I've been in it for 17 years um, and that is, is you know, my lineage um, to a certain extent. You know, lineage is such a complicated question, I think, when you're asking Black Americans that question. And it's hard not to have a rush of resilience and pain that accompanies that question um, for me. Um, but I think I really root myself in the South, um, in the Southern, what we call United States. Um, I am from Texas originally. My family is from Texas and Louisiana. Um, I am from sitting on porches in the summertime and the sound of cicadas and knowing everybody in the neighborhood. Um, I'm from a slower pace. I'm from uh, uh, churches where people laid hands on people and spirits move through that way. Um, I, I come very much from that experience. That's where I come from. I still live in the South now. Uh, and there's something about the, the closeness of it, um, the kind of humidity of um, emotions in the South that I think have really shaped me. So I come from that. Um, and I do think, just to kind of point back further, I think I come from all the smuggled spiritual and emotional technologies of my people that they, you know, the way we braided seeds into our hair, we also um, braided knowledge into um, language and into um, new practices. I think even part of that to um, the African diaspora in that way and the way that I practice and feel spirit and, um, and the way that I practice the work of re-embodying ourselves and our lives um, feels very connected to those traditions for me also. Thank you for that. Um, a lot of people are calling this moment an apocalypse, which we know just means to uncover, uncovering a lot of the things that have been here all along quite frankly, but it does feel like it's, it's compounded over the last couple months and like we're on the 
the brink of something. Like it does feel like something is happening. And I'm just curious if your practice has shifted at all or has evolved um, in different ways over the last couple of months as we've been sort of like moving through this moment. Let's see my practice. That's a good question. I mean, it has shifted a lot because I can be in the presence of people, unfortunately, which, you know, all of my practice was about being with people. Um, and, uh, and so that's been definitely a big shift, like all of us. Right. But, uh, I think the, the, the piece around apocalyptic moment, um, I just keep thinking of our indigenous ancestors and how they essentially felt like the world ended, you know, upon, um, colonizers arriving. And, um, I know we're nowhere, I'm nowhere near that. (laughs) at all um but uh but yeah i think about how their world sort of ended and how um and what that you know what some of that sort of grand um moment um felt like and and then sort of like in some ways or another coming to some sort of cycle where we're being drawn to some level of traditionalism and by that i mean um really coming back to uh you know to that to a moment where we are um you know uh, beginning to build what a new world looks like i think the world that we knew is is over like um literally as we knew it and and there's a new sort of reality and it's not because we're quarantined it's not just because um you know, we are uh, having to now be online and, and having to shift how we literally practice on a daily certain things, which actually matters a lot. But uh, it's because there are, um, there is actually a spiritual shift that has, is happening and has been happening and it's been sort of slow. Sometimes they say like one thing happens in um, 10 years and sometimes it says like, a hundred things happen in one year. And I feel like that's, this is the year where uh, we are quickly uh, accelerating towards um, the edge of, of whatever the shift is. And so I feel like the practice has definitely changed the most basic level, logistically things online, but I think the perspective is what I think has gotten even wider than maybe I had it before, to be honest. And what that means is that um, it's time. Like we've arrived at that place where I think some of us have been sort of not waiting because we've been working our asses off, right? (laughs) But some of us have been sort of like looking out for the signs of this sort of shift. And I think that um, it's time to lean in and it's time to uh, um, do more of what we've been doing at scale. Um, It's time to... um, dig deeper you know there's there's a lot of things that are we're being called to do now and i think from this moment on that will look different um whether right now for the rest of quarantine however long that lasts from now until we we, you know as we're in the brink of you know attempting to defeat fascism um which we'll talk about later and then also this climate crisis we've been talking about adaptation for years and years and years and at a certain point we have to actually lean into that and prepare in a real way, but build in the process, so. Yeah, I feel similarly. Um, 
I think in the hardest moments I've, I've reflected on the apocalypse of the arrival of my ancestors to this land and to have, um, you know, to lose your land, to lose, to be forced to lose your tongue, to be forced to lose your practices, to be forced to lose your family and those people you know, to be separated and sold. Um, it, that was a kind of apocalypse and I often think about that um, when I think about these moments, like how much was taken, destroyed, how much, um, how many lies had to be lived as fact, like how many things were turned upside down. Um, and it helps me ground in this moment, thinking about what is our work and what is my commitment and um, yeah, how I can choose not to, it's not that I don't get afraid or that I'm not concerned, but it's all, it just helps clarify um, my steps and my moves and my offerings in this moment. Um, yeah, it's been very challenging to practice. You know, I do somatics work, so so much is embodiment, and I've spent so much time in front of screens. But it's also, in some ways, stretching um, my um, field of sensing. Like, even on this call, I'm like, how do I sense the people on this call? How do I sense, how do we sense one another? How do we create? There is a thing that we are creating together when we come together. How do I sense that? and let this moment sharpen me in a way um, so that it doesn't uh, ever make it so that I turn away from connection. And I think that, you know, when I think about the things that will both sustain us and have us reach for each other and whatever these massive changes are that we are in, it's not even that we're on the brink of them, it's like they're happening right now. Um, it just feels like so much is about so much of what I can see that causes these apocalyptic moments are denials of uh, relationship and history. The way that we deny those, the way colonization has made a spiritual practice of denial and denying what has happened, denying accountability, denying, denying the interrelationship of all of us, um, that that forces in some ways an apocalypse so that there's a massive reckoning um, and realization of relationship. So for me, it's like, what's the practice of, um, how do I keep relating? How do I keep reaching for relationship? How do I change? Which I think is what Fran was offering too. It's like, this mom is asking you to change. And are you willing to change? <laughs> are you willing to be a new person now? Um, because the people we have been have led to the the necessity for a moment like this so um how willing to change are you um feels like the question that i'm with a lot these days um i was thinking about embodiment while you were talking um and and appreciating how that um that feels different for me in this sort of like virtual space. And yet like I have like a responsibility <laughs> to like, what is, what are the choices and what is the stance that I'm taking in this moment? And, and then I was thinking about um, what you were saying about how 
things are both slowing down and accelerating at the same time. Um, Francisca, I heard you say on a podcast um, that this is one virus in a virus-filled future, and I think you called it a, um, you called COVID a drill, but not a drill. Um, and and how we're really in this like in between <laughs> space where we both need to like slow down and respond with urgency. I'm just like thinking about like the contradiction of that, um, where we need to like connect more deeply than ever and yet we're separated, like we're social distanced. And so I'm just curious, like what, um, what do you think is like the stance, like the embodied stance of how we like walk that line between kind of those two um, pulls? Uh, I think somewhere in this conversation when we began, we talked about, oh, Ruby Sales, um, uh, saying that how important it was to know ourselves in this moment, to know where we come from. And um, I think the more that I can uh, feel myself, not in a kind of like luxuriating in me kind of way, or I'm more important kind of way, but that I know my I know my longings, I know my motivation, I know my cares, I know my values. I've done the work to root out the values as much as I can. It's ongoing work, rooting out those kinds of um, values that are imposed on us, that we adopt to belong, that actually don't align with our commitment to life or living or sustainability in the world. The more I can feel myself and feel congruent in myself and feel in my integrity in myself, self that's always a place i think from which to relate that's always a place to have relationship from and for me it's like the stance i can feel more when i can feel myself i can feel more when i'm clear about who i am i can sense more from that place and sense more when i'm not um what's the word kind of longing to be interpreted in a way or needing people to see me in a way, or needing to hide myself, needing to disappear myself, then I can really relate. And I think that that's some of the basis for um, the potential for more just relationships is our ability to really feel um, ourselves. So um, my position when I'm on a Zoom call or whatever I'm doing, I'm like, how can I feel my whole body? How can I know what I'm intending? How can I be actually relate from the seat of myself with another person and not trying to make something happen, which I think is how we got into a lot of this mess anyway, not relating from our from ourselves to one another, not really seeing one another, not sensing the life and the the infiniteness of the other across from us so um yeah, that's, it's like the quality of relation. I was thinking about this earlier and I'll stop talking, just um, how much, how the ways we've been taught to relate to one another and that real relationship gets obscured because we're trying to create something in our interactions with each other. We're trying to produce a feeling in another person and real relating gets obscured, real choice gets obscured, real intimacy gets obscured by how much we want something from somebody else. So as much as I can in these moments, like allowing myself the experience of really deeply relating and creating spaces where people can really deeply relate um, without feeling uh, 
like someone's trying to take something from them or make them into something else. It feels just so important to me right now. I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but that's obviously what one to be said. (laughs) (laughs) The the quick thing that I'll say is that, um, you know, right now, because we're in this moment, there's um, for those people that are coming into some consciousness um, and uh, do feel like, oh, we're in, the, we're in a, an apocalyptic moment. There's a virus. There might be more viruses. Oh, there's climate change. There's a ton of fires. And they're realizing, oh, climate change is actually being talked about, which I, you know, hadn't happened um, at scale or in the media pretty much ever until the last few years. And then also the piece around, um, you know, Trump probably not giving up um, power in a peaceful way or in an easy or smooth way or giving it up at all. Uh, you know, the, the future, the near future, next six months are very uncertain in all kinds of ways. And for those folks that are coming into some level of consciousness, um, I think everything that that Prent has said, <laughs> because knowing yourself is actually, knowing yourself is kind of like how you will situate yourself in this moment and understand your role better, right? Um, and that's really important. Uh, who are you? What's your history? What's your relationship to all this? Um, and not from a place of shame and not from a place of guilt or any of that, but simply say, this is my relationship to it. And so, um, with that understanding, being able to lean in, being able to show up, which I think has been another issue that we've lacked in the piece around denial that Prentice was talking about. It's like, if you have that impulse right now, because you're coming into all these realizations and it feels like a lot, and that impulse is like, we got to do something, um, showing up for yourself and showing up for others, just can be incredibly transformative and also nourishing, right? Um, why? Because... Um, because uh, folks need you and you need them. That's one. Two, because you'll actually get to understand more of what can be done and feel a bit more hopeful um, or feel maybe a bit more empowered or self-determined or have more agency in all of this mess if you feel like you're um, in community and in community that's probably been battling this for a long time. So. Um, I think if anything, look for those who are probably like the most impacted in all of this and have been for a long time and they'll know what to do and they'll know what to demand. And they probably even have a vision of what the future should look like. So that should give you some comfort in some ways, right? And a sense of belonging. Um, why? And they will know because Um, it's all the black and the brown and the poor and the queer and the trans and the disabled and all of these people who've been um, for centuries now (laughs) at the center of what now feels like an apocalypse to a lot of people with privilege perhaps or um, or have been in denial or have had some sort of like um, amnesia because of colonization and because of this country's culture that if you show up and you hear them, and you follow their leadership, you will most likely feel nourished, and you will most likely 
know what to do next. And you will most likely get up every day with a sense of purpose. And, um, and that is in itself both moving fast and also moving slow because you're showing up for yourself. You're giving yourself that gift, which you deserve and everybody else does, the world does. Um, and, uh, and you're also moving fast because we are in a crisis, right? Um, so there's just some of the stuff that came to mind as we were kind of unpacking this a bit more. I um, thank you for saying that because that feels like an essential part of the practice. And, and I think a lot of people are experiencing COVID and maybe discovering for the first time that our systems are not designed to care for all of us, but also see that as an equalizer, which we know that it is not. Um, and, um, and one of the questions we've been holding is like, how do we listen and learn and follow communities who have been for for a very long time creative and subversive <laughs> like working outside of the system right the ways in which they have developed cultivated imagined new systems of care um, that aren't dominated by systems of power i think before i answer that part um the question of how do we listen and learn from it's just been such an interesting moment in time because I think that in some ways, like, I feel like I've been saying, Fran's been saying these things probably for a decade. And it almost was like one day people started, and I don't mean people, I mean, mostly white people started listening um, to the things that we were saying, <laughs> which is kind of a strange experience that maybe on the other side of this moment, we'll be able to like, just talk about what happened there um, because we've been talking <laughs> and saying these things. Um, so it's, it's been a really interesting thing, a uh, moment to kind of be a part of and it's, um, and let's go and let's go, let's do what needs to be done. And, uh, and I think we're still figuring out what does it mean to listen and learn from people who've been, um, on the edges of some of this for so long. Um, and I think, you know, just to point out what Fran was saying, I think that there have been, I know in the community that I grew up in, um, the piece around adaptation that Fran brought in earlier, I'm like, we've always been uh, adapting <laughs> in terms of um, how we looked at, um, family structures, who took care of whom, how we take care of one another, how we feed one another, how we get around and move around. And um, I think that there's, I, I'm sure Fran can offer some examples, especially in, in organizing work, but I, I think there's always been an impulse to not only make do, but to, um, to find the value in each of the adaptations and configurations that we create, like we, we smartly and brilliantly create um, networks of relationship and support that keep us uh, together, keep us safe, keep us resourced. And, um, and we make meaning from that. We tell a story about that. That's not just about shame. That's about, um, I remember growing up and uh, our lights would go out or something like that. My mom would be like, we're having a candle party. 
And it was just one of the ways that we like made meaning out of um, the challenges. And that actually helped us move through in a, um, a way that kept us uh, emotionally and spiritually intact. So I think that they're just a lot of ways. And I think especially, you know, I've been seeing a lot in this moment, especially looking at Oakland and others folks on this call from Oakland and, and the way that um, the fires there are just, um, yeah, just on an, another level, like what people are experiencing in California right now. Um, and a lot of the folks that I've been seeing leading strategies around care for years, care, um, how to take care of yourself, how to cleanse your lungs and your system have been um, folks that are disabled and have dealt with um, chronic respiratory issues for years. And we just haven't as a collective paid attention to what they have learned about um, how to care for ourselves. And now it's like, oh, right, who knows how to do that? Oh, you do, because you've been doing this for a long time. So I just think there, there's so many, um, so many strategies and it, it really points to how this system does or does not train us to really listen to people, who it trains us to listen to, who we understand is legible or um, has something worthwhile to say and what that limits in terms of our own understanding and capacity to really be with the world. And in, the, in moments of crisis and change, be resilient. If we've not been able to actually hear more about what um, this reality holds, the less resilient we are when massive shifts and changes happen because so much is just like, I actually feel like politically, um, we're in a moment of, uh, how do I say this? <clears throat> where the, the trust that has existed in institutions, and I would say especially from um, white folks of middle class or upper middle class or white folks with money especially, um, there's, a, there's a break in the trust inside of the systems and that has created both a willingness to kind of spin off and believe all kinds of things about what's possible inside the system. And for some, I think it's, it's challenging, um, oh, who have I gone to to tell me what what meaning to make of this moment. So I think there's a break in trust that is creating both the potential for catastrophe and deep transformation um, that we're in. And I think it takes this, the emotional skillfulness to listen well, um, to relate, to feel and sense oneself, to not look for kind of simple um, solutions that reinforce or reify the world that we wished were still here but to actually engage in depthful work to change ourselves um, feels like the more challenging, but the move that's really necessary for our collective survival. That was great. I don't have much else to say. <laughs> there are tons of examples. And all I got to say is those folks, we have got to do more of what they're doing. So there's a great revolutionary that said time, place, and condition conditions time place and conditions so um i don't want to not give him credit his name is vladimir lenin <laughs> and so what that means is it's really about where you are what's happening where you are and what you know just the moment the conditions who you are and so there isn't a thing where like you could see maybe like what healing by choice in detroit is doing and take it not to say 
any of us are saying that, but just to kind of like, you can't just take it and then uh, take the model and then put it in wherever you are, right? So it's about um, both being exposed to what people have been doing up to this point and then really analyzing what, what you're working with and what the conditions are, right? And what's happening on the ground wherever you are and what the needs are. Um, so not being prescriptive, what are your needs? But then again, going back to like, what are the needs of folks and who's been doing this work already on the ground for a while? And how do we, how do we grow that? You know, uh, how do we grow that? How do we um, have more people know about it, have more people trained? Um, Healing and resistance is actually a project that I started in 2018. And we, I organized about 10 healers um, to try to tend to the needs of immigrant communities in Phoenix who had been either gone through deportation, detention, um, a lot of criminalization, police abuse. So having their own sort of very traumatic crisis, which is still happening. Um, And we learned a lot from that and we learned what's needed. Um, We learned what people are open to. We learned that people want to learn how to, step into their own healership as well and tend to their own well-being and the well-being of their community. So um, it's really about, again, showing up and, 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 and trying something and figuring out how to really flip the script. Like you said, systems of care, it's, like, it's not like if they collapse, they will collapse, you know, for, for all of us who know what climate change and what this, this econ- economic system is just not sustainable. And whether it's now or whether it's some other uh, situation that sort of brings it to its breaking point, it will happen. So you, you have to think about it in that way and not in like, um, you know, not to throw your hands up either and say, well, it's all going to, <laughs> you know, hell anyway. But in a way that like, this is what I'm preparing for with a lot of intentionality. And I am both training myself or, you know, ensuring that the space, the conditions, the, the, the knowledge is there for others. Um, we all have a role. And, though, and we also get to decide what that can look like. And that's really powerful. And I think, again, communities have been doing this for a long time. And there have been beautiful projects at different scales, mostly a pretty small scale, right, to tend to different crises. Um, but how do we then, um, move that, uh, uh, expand it, um, uplift it, profile it. Um, the question around what Prentice was saying, it's like, all of a sudden people are listening. It's like, um, because of this spiritual shift, right? Um, this, that is what's supposed to happen right now. And the more that we move the next year, the next five, the next 10, the more that people will actually move in that direction. And that's what gives me a lot of, um, you know, hope (laughs) in in what will come of this because I know that that's the shift that we're moving towards. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of ready for that work and it's about everybody else kind of wanting to show up for themselves and others, you know? I really appreciate that offering because I think, I think that's what I was getting at as to like, how do we, um, I'm, I'm recalibrating my language so I don't shift into doing, how do we like live into a culture of care that doesn't replicate systems of harm because we know 
that we're steeped, right, in these systems. Um, and I'm even just thinking about like the dominant culture of wellness, the dominant culture of healing and how all of these um, um, modalities, many of which are indigenous, have been colonized and stolen and taken and commodified and hyper-individualized um, so much that they've taken relationship out of healing in many ways. Um, and they've taken the ability um, to be emergent to the context, as you were saying, and to be responsive. They've almost just like whitewashed and stripped it of all of its essence. Um, and so, so that's sort of like what I was getting at, like not how do we, um, how do we take and make things multiple times over <laughs> that aren't ours, but like how do we, how do we live into this in a way um, relationally, um, in, in, like presently in an embodied way that, that doesn't continue to, to reinforce and replicate. Uh, and I'm just thinking of also the medical industrial complex and white supremacy and how, um, and how, uh, and how it has mutated over time and masked itself as like innovative and, um, and responsive. And yet it's really just like the emperor in new clothes. That piece around um, the wellness work, that, that's one that, you know, I, I sit with a lot and, and, and um, you know, a lot of the work that I think we're all trying to do is make, build the bridge between what we call wellness and what we call politics, because somehow we live in a world where those aren't the same thing, that we're not trying to care for each other and ourselves and our communities through our practice of politics, or we're not, you know, it's like the, the separateness of, of our well-being and the ways that we build um, society or economy or our home or all these things that they're somehow in, not in deep relationship to one another is like, you know, I feel like it's part of all of our intention, but it's so it's been so separated and commodified that um, things are able to uh, we're able to pretend that we could be well without each other, and we're we're able to pretend like what wellness that industry becomes in this context is nothing more than anxiety management on around what we are all collectively experiencing. And that ends up being the intention and the purpose is how do I kind of acclimate to these conditions, get enough boost so that I can um, do what I'm doing. Um, but we're not willing to uh, really transform our own selves really deeply. Like what, what do I not allow myself to see? Where does, where does denial shape me? What am I not being responsible for? And I'm not saying that it's easy. It's hard. There are things that I'm afraid to look at myself. But that doesn't mean that that isn't the work, <laughs> just because I don't want to. Um, so, and, and there's life. Where, where am I also not really sinking into the, to the wonder of this life and these relationships and the, the, the just, magnitude of this experience of life where am I not really sinking into that because I'm in some kind of hamster wheel of achievement or whatever it might be so I, I really feel like um, I appreciate all of us that are trying to do the work of bringing those more in deeper conversation and relationship because 
um, what it took to pull them apart, what it took to pull um, care apart from what we call the political realm um, was really a lot of violence and pain. And so this is our work. And to invoke um, our, you know, very good friend, Mark Anthony Johnson, <laughs> who talks about, um, you know, health for the purpose of productivity. So, you know, that is really what defines the industrial, the medical industrial complex in a way, both the, for the purpose of productivity of human beings and just getting them to really just acclimate to whatever horrible bodily or emotional situation they have going on because of this very system so they can produce and produce and consume and consume, right? That's really the purpose of the medical industrial complex. And also how, you know, the roots of that are in colonization and, and, and slavery, you know, uh, of this country. And also an uh, industrial revolution in Europe that was atrocious and there was revolutions against it. Um, so with that, if we just can really understand it under that framework, then we'll know that we need to develop a strategy for health. What is our strategy? Health for the purpose of what, or like Prentice and Mark Anthony say, it's for the sake of what, right? So like, what is our strategy for health, for well-being, for what, how do we define it, right? And how do we build around that? definition and around and, and what is the strategy what are the forms what are what is the relationship that i think prentice has like really um brought into this conversation to ourselves to each other um the, the hard work we have to do because it's emotional it's physical it's spiritual it's around embodiment um so we have a lot of work to do to both to like literally take this table and flip it over and be like okay where we need to designed a strategy for the, for the purpose of what, which is not productivity and what we would consider productive uh, or ans our indigenous ancestors might've just really looked completely different. And so, um, yeah, just wanna. Well, and that, that is the reckoning that for me personally, that, um, that pushed me towards movement um, was for me, when I asked myself for the sake of what it was for the sake of wholeness. And I had to recognize that the, the dominant culture of wellness, right, um, and so-called healing um, was actually fragmenting my sense of self and, and was actually a barrier to, um, to living into my wholeness. And, and then the fact that it was individualized and it was continuously pulling me away from, from other people out of relationship and out of relationship with like the whole because wellness likes to sort of stay in its gated community of like privilege um, really like, it almost like, like shook me out of that stupor and, um, and, and really like nudged me towards movement. And I loved what you said about, um, um, you're a movement evangelist. I know that you both are actually, um, and that you have discovered a lot of healing in movement. And I'm wondering if you could describe like what that is and what that looks like so that we can imagine beyond the wellness that we're being sold and move towards one another. Movement evangelist. I don't know that I actually identify that way. I think that I end up being something like that. I I love, that's gonna sound really cheesy, um, but I feel deeply committed to life. 
and living. And I think that um, inside of movement in this country, and I think movement as a, I was thinking earlier, I was like, uh, trying to understand ritual space and um, feeling as a, as a Black American, I was like, oh, ritual spaces in, in some places got disappeared. And then I was like, oh, a lot of our ritual spaces happen in movement. Um, a lot of our ritual spaces happen in um, direct action. Um, there's a lot that we do and invoke and um, touch into there. So I think movement is one of these, like, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's a place of like human, um, it's where we are stretching the boundaries. It's where we are um, really just allowing the new world, a new way of being to kind of like be practiced, felt, worked through. It, it's, it's, a, it's like, you know, when someone comes bursting through a painting, it's like, that's kind of what movement allows it's like this is where we're going this is what's on the other side this this is messing up your kind of paradigm of what you decided life is what you decided it is to be whatever set of identities that you hold true it's like it bursts through and says here's something realer than that here's something you've been denying and not looking at um here are the people that you didn't know how to listen to or didn't know how to um believe we're valuable or brilliant or any number of things. So, um, and I think, you know, being really active in, in Black Lives Matter, to me, one of the things that I really um, felt there, felt in the streets was this like a recovery of um, our, the expanse of Black emotionality and recovering it from the white gaze and like care about what white people felt about what we look like, what we were saying. It was like this, it was a recentering of our own experiences and own lives that, that, you know, you get taught, especially I got taught growing up in the South, that kind of like, you know, Du Bois talks about double consciousness. There's a part of you, part of your circuitry that's always running. Um, uh, trying to perceive how power is perceiving you or how white folks in particular are perceiving you and and also um, measuring safety in, in relationship to that. There's a part of your life energy. You know what I'm saying? There's a part of your life that just gets burnt out focusing on somebody else. And in those moments, in those spaces, you know, I've done a lot of healing work. I've done a lot of healing work around the way anti-Blackness and internalized white supremacy have operated inside of me. But there was a, a level and a layer of like freedom from that burn um, that I've only ever been able to feel inside of movement, inside of organizing. Um, same as just like knocking on people's doors and stuff. Fran and I talk about this sometimes, like, relating to people, not telling stories about who people are, not being afraid of who people are, not allowing yourself to not see yourself in other people, 
knocking on people's doors and relating to people, to the people who live next door to you or live in your community, it, it changes and deepens your idea of what is actually happening. You're less susceptible to being told what is happening. You're more able to understand what is actually happening. So um, I feel like it's one of the, the sites of practice of really like, what are we doing? How are we doing this? How are we gonna build this world? Um, and so for that, I guess, I'm, I, maybe I sound like a movement evangelist now. We're in oh, church, yeah. we're in church with you right now. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I mean, it's just my commitment is definitely to movement. My commitment is definitely to my folks feeling free in our lifetimes. Like materially, I want us to feel free. I want our lifespans to expand. I want us to stop dying. I want us to feel the depth of love and all the manifestations and flavors of love. I want us to love the earth and understand and anticipate its cycles again. Um, that's what I want for our lives. And movement is the only, only thing I've seen that is even willing to engage in that conversation. So, yeah, for that reason. Yes. Um, that's exactly right. I mean, I'm an immigrant, right? So I migrated to the United States when I was nine years old. And it sucked really bad. <laughs> it was deeply, deeply earth shattering talk about worlds ending right my world ended i was literally i landed on a different planet at nine years old and um and all that to say that uh when i say evangelist i I really do mean like i believe in the movement the way that i believe in a great creator because i do believe in a creator creator um and it and all of its different forms again because of a lot of what Prentice said, but specifically because I think the, the, the world that we want to see, the, the world that we want to feel in our bones, in our, in our literal body, um, in our hearts and spirits can only be possible through the kind of change that m- movements produce. And we can look back to to whatever time in history and that will be the answer right however big or however small and so that's made me like that's i i will live and die by building movements to shift conditions and to build the kind of um society that we want to create um and and that's the reason why i feel so committed to it um and that's where I have felt the most belonging, right? As a kid who migrated, who just felt like completely ripped from everything I knew and understood, literally understood and emotionally understood. And I hadn't felt that sense of belonging in a real way until I was part of something that um, had all kinds of other quote unquote, you know, I feel like a misfit. And I'm like, oh, all of us have gone through a lot and all of us have been seen and have felt that way in this country, this conditional relationship that has made me sick and has kept me sad. You all know it and you all have felt it and you all want to change that. Um, and the level of agency and self-determination that I literally felt 
um, that I regained through it and that I've seen others regain, right, from the all kinds of other immigrant people that have been through high hell, like all kinds of hell, detention, deportation proceedings, like losing family members, um, mothers who've lost their children to police violence, like to be able to find sanctuary and renewed purpose to me is like everything. Right. Um, and so that's why I believe that that is what is a really important vehicle for exactly what Prentice is saying, the freedom that we want and the liberation and the kind of, you know, um, conditions that we want to live and exist in the world. I love that you said create the conditions for, cause that, that feels different in my body than the language of like doing and creating um, like, like, you know, like making shit happen that like that, that impulse, whereas creating like, what does it look like to create the conditions of belonging? What does it look like to create safer conditions? What does it look like to create the conditions of expression of radical expression and wholeness? And it's making me think about accountability. And it makes me um, wonder if that's a condition of movement space. And I'm thinking about, um, I know you both know Adrienne Marie Brown, and I've heard her say that accountability is how we come into community. Um, but I think it's often not what we think of accountability often in dominant culture. Like we, we think of accountability as like, uh, or, or we, or like avoid conflict at all costs, right? Preserve our innocence. Um, um, we think of accountability often as punishment, given that we're like steep in, steeped in a punitive culture. One of the things I um, read, Prentice, that you wrote um, was, what if we could see ourselves less as innocent, but as harmed and harming, more or less honest, more or less able to, to be conscious when triggered, more or less manipulative, more or less willing to take responsibility for our own change, more or less caught in patterns. Um, is that the, the practice of accountability? Is that what that looks like? Um, and, and how do we live into accountability with one another while reducing harm at the same time? Accountability is so many things. And I'm glad that we're talking about it more and more because I, I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's important for us to just keep digging into what it is. Um, accountability, uh, is some of what movements are demanding in many ways and that I think a lot of folks don't have the capacity to engage or understand the kind of accountability that we are demanding and that's necessary actually for healing and the end of destruction, widespread destruction. Um, accountability is honesty. Accountability is uh, it's it kind of points to the thing I was saying earlier about denial and ahistoricism, um, those kinds of practices that I think are actually cultural, they become cultural practices the more we kind of concretize them and say, these are the things we're agreeing to practice is denying the impacts we've had on other people. Um, they become really deeply embedded in the culture that we're all swimming in. Um, accountability is the opposite of that. It's being willing to uh, become aware of, to acknowledge our impact in the world 
on each other. Um, and I think one of the things that it requires from an emotional standpoint or from an embodied standpoint is that um, kind of what I was alluding to in that quote was that we get so, we really wanna be innocent or good or nice or all of these things that are not the same as being interested in growing or maturing or being honest and authentic. They actually serve to keep you from doing those things. <laughs> That's when you try to be good and innocent all the time, you're never going to be, um, you're never going to be able to really have integrity and to be authentic and to be in deep relationship. So um, what I was trying to point to was like, so much of the way we conceptualize ourselves now as human beings has to do with kind of like cramming ourselves into these good, nice, innocent identities, as opposed to letting ourselves be in the muck of being alive, really be in the stew of it and be a process more than being some kind of concrete innocent, always nice kind of person. That's where you get into a whole lot of things that you have to then undo through healing work. Um, but we have to allow ourselves, I say this, you know, when I do centering practice with people, can you relate to your body not through control, but through curiosity? It's a whole different way of being alive to let yourself emerge and come out to reveal yourself to yourself and it allows you to have an authentic engagement with the world, your impact in it and on it, to not um, be so beholden to an identity or some value judgment of who you are that you can't change with new information. Do you know how much we don't know? <laughs> Do you know how much I don't know that you don't know? There's so much you don't know. So if someone comes to you and says, I was harmed, I was hurt by that, or, this thing happened. Are you willing to open yourself to know more about where you might be out of alignment with your values or where you might be out of alignment with collective values? Are you willing to sit with that change, take that information in and do something different? And I, I think it, it, it requires us to look at ourselves differently, but also requires us to resist kind of scrambling to these safe harbors of goodness that are really about uh, protecting us from responsibility. So many things came up when you were sharing that. And, and one of them is, is around what it's going to take for us to take the leap into uncertainty and even into imagination. And I'm just thinking about what you said around control. Can you relate to yourself not through control, but through curiosity? And it made me think, that that would be an interesting practice around care too, right? Because I think dominant systems of care, the medical industrial um, system, I'm thinking of cure culture is all about controlling bodies. And that's what we've been conditioned in. And so I'm just like wondering, I think like I'm thinking that there's like a threshold that people are walking along between where we're coming from and where we're going, between our kind of addiction to the illusion of security and control and certainty and to everything that lies beyond that, that we can't see. And I'm also thinking of imagination and sci-fi and how there are a lot of people sort of walking that line right now. And you mentioned this before, many are defaulting to conspiracy theories 
in lieu of right, allowing the ma- imagination to blossom. And others are clinging for dear life, like doubling down to be real on fascism, um, on violence, um, on control and surveillance, on disinformation, on opening for business, on not wearing a mask. I mean, right, the, the list goes on. And, and I just like name that because like I, I get caught sometimes between that tension of like, um, there's something emerging and there's also like a doubling down of resisting change. And so I'm just curious from both of you, how do we step over that line? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's a very complicated and also not answer, I think, or thought that I have, but, um, or question, all of it. Um, one thing, one thought, one thing that I was taught early on in my like baby organizer, uh, life was two things one is um there's just a lot of contradictions that we need to be comfortable holding right and prentice and i actually had a little bit of this conversation or maybe it was mark anthony i don't all of us but it's you know how do we train ourselves or how do we just step into showing up is the first thing like you just show up you might not know what the hell you're doing you might not know how you're going to step over that threshold you might not know a lot of things, like you said. It's like that uncertainty or that radical, I think you said radical uncertainty. If you just show up, you might actually be able to step over that threshold next time if you just keep showing up every day, right? So it's like um, one thing is there's a lot of contradictions that we're sort of holding right now, and it's about figuring out, and I know it's really hard, and I don't have like this secret recipe of what that looks like like figuring out how to sit with that uh while still being in action so we talked about moving fast and moving slow it's like there's a slowness of just like not knowing where this is all going and there's also the fact that we've never known like you think you knew so the more that you step into like you've actually never known so can you just accept that because if you did you would have known we would have been here right and so just accept you don't know you never knew and there's some level of being able to become a bit more comfortable or developing more bandwidth to sit or like more space or, you know, whatever that is, to be able to sit with that contradiction. Um, so some acceptance, maybe some surrendering, but also like being this being that we are, we are uh, literally a, a, con- a walking contradiction like we're a struggle of opposites in every part of our body from this molecular cellular level right um is there a secret recipe i think honestly just showing up showing up to kind of want to do that work and showing up saying i want to i want to be able to um lean into curiosity and i know i have all of these sort of questions and the closest that i can think about that i that i relate to it is that obviously all my movement work I have no idea if we're going to win a campaign. I have no idea if this is going to be, if this tactic's going to work. I have no idea if this direct action is going to go the way we thought, but we got to try it, right? But on the more basic level, like I have three kids and I've definitely had moments of being like, what was I thinking? Like the world is rough, like, and it's going to go, you know, it's, it's going to get rougher in all kinds of ways. But part of me is like, I, these children that are coming into the world, will also be the ones that are kind of like leaning into, like how do I get my children to sort of lean into that curiosity, that ra- radical sort of imagination, 
knowing that they're actually the ones that are going to be sort of leading us in a particular direction and that there has to be these little beings that grow up to be adults that are going to do this. So, so that to me has been the biggest contradiction that I've sat with over the last few years, to be honest. The other thing that I was taught in terms of all the radical right-wingers, reactionaries, and the realities like they're, they're, that that's a very big part of this country or a, a significant piece of it, maybe not a big part, is that we're looking for the people that are looking for us. That was one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And so I'm not saying ignore them, who cares? But what I am saying is look for those who might be looking for you um, because we got to start somewhere, right? Um, and if we start thinking of all the ways in this country is divided, we're going to get way overwhelmed and probably defeated before we even stand up, you know? And so there are people looking for you just like you're looking for them. Trust me, you know? Yes, that was good. Um, mm, yeah, I mean, that, everything that Fran just said, I think the, I, the thing I'll see on top when you asked the question was like, you know, one of the things that hold us, holds us back is, you know, need to be right, which is a way that we imagine ourselves we can be safe. You know, it's like rightness and goodness and innocence and all those things all come from the same root. And um, this isn't a moment to be right. This isn't a moment to get through without making mistakes. It's the moment to learn how to live with making mistakes, to really let yourself, you know, I keep saying to let yourself change. Part of the process of changing is mistake making and forgiving yourself and getting up again and being resilient enough to keep going and showing up like francisca is saying like practicing that this isn't a moment when none of us is going to be right <laughs> none of us are going to get on the other side it's like well i did that perfectly well done it's gonna get messy and it's gonna get closer potentially than it has been. We're going to get closer to one another through our mess. So I think being willing to, I say wean yourself off of innocence, but also like relinquish rightness in this moment and choose something else that will actually mature you and grow you, I think is really, really important. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to find your place in the movement. For some of us, that means leading on the front lines. And for others, especially those of us with more privilege, it means following. Francisca reminds us to look for those who are most impacted by this moment, and they'll know what to do. If you show up and follow their leadership, you will most likely feel nourished and know what to do next. You can follow Prentice and Francisca on Instagram at Francisca underscore Porches and at Prentice.h. And check out our show notes for links to their podcasts and how you can support their work in the world. A special thanks this week to my amazing co-conspirators in Citizen Summit, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, Kareen Luck, and Michelle Cassandra Johnson. And thank you to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. 
And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and share the love by telling your friends to check us out.